Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today has become Britain's most revered shepherd, leading not only his sheep, but the rest of the country on a pastoral journey. Hundreds of thousands of people follow his tweets on sheep's testicles, the live birth of his puppies, or the name of the latest calf on his 300-acre farm. His family have farmed Matterdale in the Lake District for as long as records have existed. At least six centuries and probably longer, he says. Landscapes like ours are the sum total and culmination of a million little unseen jobs. James Rebanks, thank you very much for joining us, or rather letting us join you on your farm. And it's absolutely beautiful. We've come to Cumbria and there's rolling hills, green fields, exquisite trees everywhere. It's really beautiful. What's your first memory of farming, of this land? So firstly, thank, thank you for coming and thank you for having me on. And, and then my first memories are probably the ones I told in the book, really. They're probably uh, memories of following my dad or my granddad, or in some cases my grandmother around the farm and not really knowing what it, who we were or why we did these things, but slowly sort of piecing them together. Just a lot of random scenes of, I don't know, castrating lambs or helping my, taking hay out in the snow with my granddad or leading turnips in or, and there's quite a lot, of, my dad, my granddad was quite romantic about the, the wild things that they've drawn on the farm as well. So quite a lot of those memories of my granddad trying to teach me things about hedgehogs or foxes or, so yeah, it came as a bit of a shock later on to realise that people thought farmers were the bad guys in terms of nature, because yeah. I, I, in my head, a farmer was somebody like my granddad who told you about those things or cared about them. Yeah. And do you think the, kind of the dry stone walls and these hills and the streams and the hardwick sheep that you call cultural objects almost like art, did they seep into your subconsciousness before you could even walk? Do you feel that you grew up very much as part of them, almost like the trees? Yeah, so, uh, the the culture of my family, which I think is probably very, pretty much the culture of most, nor certainly northern farming, livestock f families, is that that you are your livestock. You literally are as good or as bad as people as the sheep that you s sell at the auction in the autumn. You're defined by that. Your friends are through that. Your reputation, whether you're good people, bad people, or about how you do that. All my granddad's stories are about selling sheep and things and trying to be honest to other people and I didn't realise when I was young but I did realise when I wrote about it later in the books that he's trying to tell me what our values were mm. that we're, we look after animals as well as we can we try to have a tidy farm we try to be good neighbours to the people around us so we put the walls up and like good fence what is it good walls make good neighbours or whatever it was Robert Frost said those were yeah I think I think we were absolutely defined by what we did so so much so that in my family and lots of those other families, there's not always a great deal of interest in the individual. 
So like in the modern world, we celebrate people because they're like a, they want to be a poet or they're a beautiful photographer or something. In those families, it could be a little bit damning of that. You were meant to do what everybody else did. That was our tribe were sheep people, and I was meant as a kid to be into that. And that that didn't feel hugely oppressive to me because I quickly was into that. But I can see that maybe it was a bit narrow-minded for other people. I think some people got out of the countryside because it could be claustrophobic and narrow. And do you have almost a physical connection with the land? So you talk about how farmers have a thousand shades of green, a bit like the Inuits have so many different words for snow. Can yeah, you just describe I, what that's like? So I, I, I never feel settled in places where there aren't hills. <laughs> right. I can go to other places and enjoy them, but um, my wife laughs at me when we, whenever we come back up England on the motorway, when we get to T-Bay and Orton on the Shapfells and you see the fells again. I, even to this day, I, I like punch my fist like I'm, we're home. It's all good. <laughs> so you don't want to go to the seaside or uh, hang out? Briefly. I used to hate going places. I've, I've learned, because my life's made me go other places, I've learned that it's okay, that you can sort of find a way to enjoy it. But I was very, very homebirdy as a kid. And you spent your whole time with your grandfather in little. What was he like? Because he must have been a link to another generation again. Yeah, he was, he was amazing. Like, we live in this house at the moment, which is a barn conversion. I can remember feeding cattle in here. His cattle used to be tied at that end of the barn and lamb sheep in here with him yeah he was he was amazing he was if if our farm was the center of the world then he was the sort of king of the world in my in my youthful head and he'd obviously spent all his life studying this land and this place and everybody knew him and he knew everybody he was also sort of weirdly classless as well so he used to train a racehorse or two out of his farmyard and he'd had some success with that but he'd like the queen mother's racehorse trainer had rang him up at times in the past to ask him where he was running horses and he knew like local aristocrats and things and I, I saw him talking to them and he was completely unabashed there was no like deference they would call him Huey and he was so although he was this like little farming man he clearly had mm. been good at things mm. and had a sort of inner confidence that meant he didn't doff his cap to anybody really and I think in lots of ways I've been influenced by that I, I later learned that he probably wasn't a very good husband probably a little bit of a mean father to my own dad, which would have a big impact on my dad's early years. And yeah, like lots of rural people, he would, he would have some prejudices and failings that wouldn't look good now. Mm. <laughs> and was it a very different style of farming? You know, there wouldn't have been any diggers or certainly no Lamborghini tractors or cob bikes. Yeah, it was all very, it was sort of dog and stick farming. There was there were tractors to be fair but he was he was an out and out horseman I mean the reason he had those racehorses just because as a young man he'd ploughed other people's land with like a team of horses two two Clydesdale horses so did you still have horses when you were younger yeah but they were sort of hangover nobody ever really explained it but they would be like these racehorses in <laughs> or they would talk about horses all the time or there would be horse kit on the fireplace um my granddad seemed to think, and my, and my dad had somehow got this. And there's some lovely pictures of my, my dad died six years ago as a 65-year-old man. But there's pictures of my dad when he's like four or five years old holding on to workhorses in the yard. So even though the, the workhorses weren't still there, it didn't feel like they'd been gone very long. They, they felt like a sort of ghost on our farm. When we had small, well, by the standards of now, ridiculously small tractors doing the, most of the work. But there were still farm workers everywhere. It was still a small field pattern. It was still patchwork, mixed rotational farming. And would he taught your grandfather ever about what it was like when he was young? Yeah. So his stories were from the 1890s, Amazing. like from his granddad. And so the, his granddad was called T.G. Holiday, who's this amazing 
sort of farmer figure who was, as a young man, had sort of broken out and built this sort of farming, <laughs> little farm, little northern farming empire not far from here. And he'd been like the first person ever to take a thousand sheep into an auction on one day. Probably by the standards of now quite an industrial farmer. And some of his kids had, had built a quarry and he, he was involved in the setting up of the local auction mart and uh, building society and all sorts of stuff. But this man was also a very, very clever farmer. He'd, he'd gone to Ireland and he brought bullocks in on the boat that came into the harbour at Silleth and they walked them back to their farm and fattened them and then put them on trains at Carlisle to send to... So well, quite complex well, already. Yeah, quite complex. Mm. I, like, I can't pretend we were like tiny little peasant farmers that mm. lived at peace with the earth. Mm. <laughs> uh, if, you go, if you go back a hundred years before me, there were some quite interesting characters in my family. Some of them were really small, poor farmers, almost in the workhouse. And then over there was this other guy called T.G. Holiday. And my granddad had followed him around as a boy. So all my granddad's boy, stories about his boyhood were from 1890 or 1900 or 1918 or whatever it was. Yeah, and I think I had a sort of slightly romantic idea about how the world worked because it was all from that time. Mm. And you loathed school though, didn't you? Can you remember your first day and what it was like? And just sitting at a desk must have been... Well, the, the, the truth is I didn't hit primary school. I went to a very rural, very farmy primary school where I played with lots of other farm kids or people that lived in the countryside and I had lovely teachers and I didn't feel at all alienated yeah. there. But there was a major shift when I went to secondary school, which was in the local market town in like a comprehensive and it was a lot more of an urban vibe mm. whenever i watch that ken loach film cares it does my memories of it are a bit like that movie where there's like a school teacher who's shouting at you and people are beating each other up and smoking fags behind the bike sheds and that's sort of what it is like in my mind my memory of it and i hated that i felt completely out of place i didn't feel like i was tough enough i didn't feel like i was cool enough i didn't really understand the, the flinging from the one world mm. into the other mm. Did you just not understand why you were there? Because, I mean, you must have felt like a waste of time. Then. Yeah, I remember quite quickly thinking, I don't want to be here. Mm -hmm. Like, partly I don't feel safe here. <laughs> and I, I sort of turned myself into a sort of... Uh, so success was dangerous. <laughs> right, yeah. So I think it's still true in lots mm. of schools now. So I made myself the kid that would make everybody laugh. And I'd sit next to the tough kid in the class who became my friend and, and the kids that would break stuff because it was funny and... And I could do that. I could be the kid that didn't quite get caught, that would push things right to the limit and had like a wise crack about everything. And and that was, a, I think, looking back, that was a sort of way to fit in and a way to survive. Yeah. I just got a little bit lost in it. So after five years of that, I was basically flunking all of my exams. I didn't want to be there. I was desperate to get, to get home. And I could see my family looking at me a little bit funny, like, what sort of monster have you become? You, you're now this sort of smart, smart aleck teenager that mm. thinks he's clever and you're not that clever. You just flunked your exams and you're yeah. going to come home and work on the farm. And yeah, so I think my dad and granddad wanted to sort of drill that out of me a little bit when I came home. Like, mm. I, we're not quite sure what you've become in that time, but you need to be nice now and you need to grow up and get back to our values. And you did actually smash up some school equipment and things, and you, yeah, it was, you a, pre it was what, a pretty what, horrible. What was the yeah. worst thing you did? I, I, my kids were asking me this the other day. How bad were you, Dad? I don't think <laughs> I don't think I don't think I was ever truly terrible. There was just a general vibe in the school at which I enthusiastically joined in with that you'd do everything to undermine teachers. Pretty okay. horrible. Um, you'd drag your feet like there's a million ways to resist, isn't mm. there? Things that you don't like. So I would. And there was, yeah, we used to turn the gas taps on and light them with cigarette lighters so the teacher would come in and it looked like Q8 instead of... Oh. <laughs> um, 
and and yeah, and like, could you accidentally on purpose break microscopes and things? I mean, it's hideous, absolutely hideous behaviour that I can't believe anybody ever thought was cool. But that was the vibe in our school. And it was partly because, I think part of it was there were two schools in a local town. One was a grammar school, and at 13 you were separated. So my wife and my sisters and others who'd worked hard at school earned the right to go to that grammar school, they did well. Those of us that left behind, both by our own choice and by the system, had sort of been identified. You're just here to fill time in mm. until you go to become farm workers or working garages. And of course, nobody wants to just be filling time in a place mm. where you're not respected. So. There was a lot going on in that mix, but we um, we just didn't want to be there. And I, I left school at 15 and a half, and, and it was probably the happiest day of my life in that first 20 years. I just couldn't <laughs> How did you celebrate? I just remember walking across the place. I think you had to go and get a piece of paper signed by like the teachers. And I'd been really nervous they wouldn't sign it because I hadn't done any work. I thought like potentially they were going to make me stay in some way, some bureaucratic way. Anyway, they were delighted to see the back of me, and they just signed these pieces of paper. I remember walking across the tarmac and like another fist pump moment where you think, mm. right, I'm out of this, mm. I'm out of this. And I, I naively thought, it's all fine. You just mm. go back to your farm when you become your granddad. Mm. This won't be difficult in any way. I know what that is. Um, not sure what that thing was that they just tried to make me do, but I've just gone out of it and I'm free. That so was it partly that the teachers looked down on you? Did you feel? Did I, you I felt like, I didn't feel that they respected what we mm. were. I'm not sure our behaviour would have earned anybody any respect either, but... So some of it was probably earned, sort of <laughs> lack of respect that was earned by our misbehaviour. But yeah, it, fe it felt like the whole point of school at that time was to civilise you, make you something else. All of the language was about, there was some talking down to us, like, like come on, you, like, you're going to end up complete losers, you're going to end up doing dead-end sort of dead jobs in your local town or on farms. You need, yeah. to you need to have more imagination, you need to aspire to go somewhere else and do things. Yeah. And... And, I and did that mean leaving the Lake District? Was it that sense that you've got to yeah, leave? If yeah. you want to make anything of yourself, you've got to get to a town. It was, de it was definitely. It was, it was sort of clear that the teachers' own kids and the kids that they admired right. were the kids that went to university, got went out. on, to, got, got out. And I wasn't a getting out kind of kid. In fact, uh, I wrote in the book, I've just finished English Pastoral, that I was a proud little Spartan. Mm. I, I was worse than not wanting to get out. I was actually proud to stay. And if you call that stupid, I'd, I'd, I'd live that for you. I wasn't backwards about it. I was quite militant. Like I know, I know you think I'm a loser and I'm doing the wrong thing, but I, I don't care what you think. Yeah, but it's fascinating. The school's careers advisor said you should become a zookeeper, and there was no no sense at all that farming yeah. might be an option. So they, uh, how did that make you? So feel? this this sounds like some weird story from the nineteen yeah. late nineteen eighties. I told them that I wanted to work outside. I liked animals. They asked me, <laughs> they asked me all these tick box questions, and the only thing that that came out of the computer was I should be a zookeeper, which everyone thought was hilarious. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious for 30-something years until my daughter came from, from school and had a very similar experience recently. They, whatever yeah, that, whatever yeah. that software is, it does not have a farming option. She came back and it said for her that it was working sort of, it was to do with stables. It was to do with like you sort of, equine, right. sort of equine work. Yeah. Or I think Zookeeper may have been on her print. And you think, good God, this is in Keswick and Penrith. Yeah. Where significant numbers of people have grown up on farms and they're surrounded by these amazing farming landscapes. So I think there is, I'm not as chippy about it as I used to be. I suspect in the school I went to, there was brilliant teachers and lovely people and I just was not in the right frame of mind to get anything from but that. But they were negating your whole way of life, mm. weren't they? I mean, that's the well, difficult on, thing is that- they, On one level it felt like that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's sort of saying actually you're the past and you know, what, what you aspire to is actually, you know, an old way of life that you don't really want anymore and that's you know, irrelevant now almost. Yeah, I think so. I think that in their heads, 
and, and what were they? They were teachers that had studied hard to go to university themselves. They were the kids that had gone out. They weren't the kids that stayed in another place to do a job, a, a working class job. I think that is, I think that does happen to an extent with teachers. I think less so now. You're right. I, I didn't like the whole setup. I just thought this, this, this school is not set up to, to enable me to live the life I want to live. It's set up to make, persuade me to do something else. Mm. And then I'm now, to an extent, I, I'm not interested in that. I, I, I like what I like. I like the place I'm from. I like the people I'm from. I like the work that I do. And you can try to persuade me that that's all bad, but you're not going to mm. win any time soon. But is that also why you didn't get any GCSEs? Because it just didn't seem relevant to what you wanted to do. I, I did worse than that. I deliberately flunked them. Okay. Like I was quite good at geography. I had a really, really nice teacher called Mr. Tarn, who was a good teacher. He knew I could do it. Mm. Like without trying very hard, I got quite good marks. And and I went into the geography exam and I knew I could answer all the questions. I flicked through it and I thought I could answer them. And I thought, and then I did the, one of the stupidest things I've ever done, which is I deliberately wrote good answers for all, but in the wrong boxes. Oh. For the different questions i thought he'll find this hilarious like this is so funny because i'm so cool and and one of the you know, those moments where you, you grow up and you realize that isn't funny yeah. that wasn't a cool thing he just did uh, i went i saw him he i think the teachers read the papers i think they must have seen the papers mm. that we'd done he couldn't even look at look at me when i like in the weeks after mm. that and i remember looking at him thinking oh he you tried didn't you he tried to help me and nobody else cared it was like a joke that fell on deaf ears and I've got tears in me. I was just thinking about it. I still feel embarrassed. Have about you ever seen him do. again? I've never seen him. And he probably thinks I was an absolute mm. horror because mm. I was. But that man had tried really hard to help me and I yeah. threw it back in his face. Mm. And the fact he couldn't look at me, I think it was, I think it was when I realised that this is not a funny joke that you're doing. Like the only person that's losing in this joke is you. Mm. And there isn't an audience of people who think you're clever or funny. They, don't, they just think you got a D or an F or something in mm. the exam. And what was it like going back to the farm then and being with your dad? Was your relationship good with him then or was it quite fractious? It was quite good. Although my dad had just wrestled the farm off my granddad or was in the process of wrestling off it. And then I was quite quickly at home full of ideas about how we should, I should be the centre of it. And that was, there was quite quickly a butting of heads. There's probably a couple of years grace where I didn't challenge him and I was learning and was part of it. And I loved that. Compared to school, the, th the following five years are some of the best years of my life in my memories. Because I was working, still working with my granddad until he died, and I was working with my dad, like long days on the farm, and d nobody, nobody with a different set of values was challenging me in any way. I was in my own world where I knew how it all worked and what it was all about. Those are still some of my best memories. And when my granddad died, that not long after that, and my dad died six years ago, I treasure those years. Mm. I think I, I did all that. I'm glad I did it, and not because they were perfect or saintly. I saw the absolute worst of them both, to be honest. And they saw the worst of me, the absolute worst of me. And I think there's something in that. There's something good about doing that. And I, I sometimes worry. I have friends that had a different life to that. I went to university and went off to do other things. And when I talk to them about their parents, they say, you don't realise that we didn't spend much time with them as adults. We went off. We got a job in London. Yeah. We, we did another thing. And we only went back for bank holidays and Christmas. And we never really got to know them. And I think, well, I really got to know mine. I could, t I could write you a list of things wrong with them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there must but, have been tensions between the generations oh, as Yeah, well. I mean, as, as I, so I left school at 15 mm. and a half, by the time I'm 20, uh, I'm, I'm, in my head, I'm a man, I've worked for several years, I'm now, I don't need you to tell me how to do this, I'm going to tell you how to do it. Mm. And, and I'm at, the context for that, my dad just wrestled it off his dad after 20 or 30 years of him doing it, and that went really badly. Mm. Like, my dad's like, who the, who the 
do you think you are? Um, I'm not having that. Mm. And there would be real tensions. So until I was 20, it was okay. And then there's a couple of really horrible years where it was it got rough and it got a bit nasty. And, and he got very depressed, didn't he, your father, in the 90s? Because it was just so tough being a farmer. And he must have been going through that. Yeah, I don't think he was. Like, I don't think he was clinically depressed, but he did, he was definitely a, a man who was working harder and harder and harder, trying his absolute best, and his world was contracting or getting more difficult or problematic, and there was more debt. His debt was spiraling, and him and my mum were doing the work that had once been four or five people doing it, and it's yeah, and he wasn't. Uh, lucky enough, I knew him for a long time after that, and I saw him become a different person as his world changed later on, and much nicer person. But yeah, it's not nice to see your dad crushed by debt and, mm. and looking like he thinks he's failing in some sort of personal way. Because farms feel personally very personal. It might be structural, it might be globally economic, the reasons why you're not making any money anymore. But you feel like it's your fault. Yeah. You've just spent 20 years persuading your own dad to let you run something and then you're running it, it's losing money and it's getting uglier and scruffier and it's falling apart and that feels really personal. Mm. And how did it affect you? Did he start taking it out on you? Uh, I initially thought... It, I thought, oh, my dad's a loser because he can't work this out. There's like big farms 20 miles away. All oh, my cousins have worked this out. Like, if only he'd get out of the way, I'd have all the answers. You're young and arrogant, mm. aren't you? And, uh, yeah, it was, it was tricky. We got, to, got into moments where we would fight, say a lot of nasty things to each other, a couple of flashpoints where it would go worse than that. Um, so physically fight? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. In, in a way that now feels a bit weird <laughs> mm. but then probably wasn't that weird at that time and that place with those kind of families um what was the worst moment uh do you know what i'm actually not i've never told anybody about the worst moment i'm probably not i'm not going to tell you about the worst <laughs> moment but a, a really nasty fight yeah. a really nasty fight in which people got hurt and um and that's not great, is it? And I, I, and actually, that was sometimes you have to go to the bottom to get back up, don't you? And in some ways, I think about that moment, and I think we got over we got over a few things in that moment. And, and did you, you and, ever hug and kiss? Were you that kind of family at all? Was uh, your mother? Not hugely. My mum, my mum, my mum's always been very loving. Uh, still is a little bit straight laced, but she's she's very loving. She good cook, and, yeah. Uh, she's not. Uh, oh, I nearly said my mum wasn't a good cook. She, she might listen to this. She's okay. I wouldn't say she's like the greatest cook in the world, but yeah. she'd do good home cooking, mm. and we never wanted for anything. And and she would try to. My mum would try really hard to make me a kid that would work at school. She's like, I know you want a farm, but like this other stuff's good, useful. Like don't don't throw this away. And I was so convinced that that wasn't what my dad and granddad mm. had done that I wouldn't listen to her. So my mum was actually quite a thoughtful sort of cultured person that would read books quietly in a room, totally different to my dad, that likes to play the piano, that would listen to classical music, that would sort of pretend she wasn't clever to fit in with other people around her. Or I think in sort of farming company, where historically it would have divided into the men in one room and the, other, the women in the other room, and the women, whether they wanted to or not, might have ended up talking about sort of domestic things. And my mum would, I think my mum would do a bit of pretending to fit in. Mm. She's probably desperate to talk about books or music or something, and for years wouldn't. And it's been nice. Yeah, I got to see my mum and my dad get out of that time into something better later on where they could be more themselves. And uh, my dad in particular got through his own troubles with debt and things and was a completely different person. The last 15 years I knew him, he was just a really nice, decent mm. man. 
So uh, how did you become hooked on reading? Was that because your mother had lots of books in the house? Yeah, so I, le I left school and I couldn't, I left school at 15 and a half so I couldn't drive. Mm. So if there wasn't like an older lad or lass that I was friends with that would drive us to town to get into mischief, what do you do the rest of the, rest of the week? And uh, my dad would have the TV controls and then fall asleep and the, <laughs> yeah. there was no smartphone so you couldn't look at social media so it became books. I started picking books up off the shelf. I didn't realise that my mum's dad, who'd been a teacher in Bury, uh, had fought in the Second World War and then come back. He'd left her a lot of brilliant books, like yeah, Hemingway's, Camus, Sartre's. Is this, do you say Sartre? Or Sartre, Sartre yes. yeah. Um, my mum used to laugh at me because I couldn't pronounce any author's names. Amazing library of books. <laughs> yeah, they were. They were some of the greatest books ever written and they were the books when I started to read and I was ready to read and into it. Yeah, but bizarrely, as a 15 and 16 year old who's just flunked out of school, I'm, I'm very quickly nerding out on the greatest books ever written. You're listening to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, the farmer and writer, James Rebanks. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the farmer and writer, James Rebanks. And then you became brilliant at pub quizzes, didn't you? And I just, it's very interesting, there's different <laughs> kinds of intelligence, so did yeah. you suddenly realise that you might have flunked school, but actually, you were quite clever? Yeah, I sort of... In an odd way, I think I have an advantage in all this. So I, I think there are kids in really disadvantaged situations that maybe nobody ever believes in and maybe nobody spent time teaching them to read and stuff who, who perhaps have good reason not to have a lot of internal confidence. But in a funny way, I always did. Mm. And I think it's because I'm not actually that deprived. I had a farmer granddad who had a lot of mm. cultural confidence. I had a mum who taught me to read. I had a house full of the right books. And I never felt stupid. Mm. I knew other people were viewing me as a bit stupid because I'd left school, but I thought, no, actually, I'm, I'm sheep smart or I'm mm -hmm. farm smart. And then when I read books, my, my, my two younger sisters who had, were more sensible than me and weren't as, weren't as obsessed with the farm as me, they did well at school, and that was quite liberating. I thought, oh, hang on, I didn't, I didn't know we could do that and get away with it. Mm -hmm. So my two younger sisters sort of 
did another thing. And they got a lot of respect for it as well. I remember being in the house thinking, I'm pretty sure you're not cleverer than me. But everyone, <laughs> everyone, everyone, competition. everyone respects you because mm. you've just got loads of brilliant yeah. GCSEs or A-levels. And then, and then feeling a sort of slight tinge of jealousy thinking, I think I could have done that. I didn't know we could mm. do it. Could boys do that too? Because um, it was quite a gendered thing, which is often worked against women in those families. But by that point, there was a thing whereby the, el- the, the lads meant to farm and the lasses are meant to be clever at school and go and do something else. And yeah. the, hilari- the, the hilarious mm. thing 25 years later is that the girls who worked hard at school went to other things and now doing really well in the world, earning lots of money and are, are often better off than the lad who stays at home to farm. Right. And sometimes when the dad or the granddad dies, now sometimes it's the young women who left 25 years ago who have the money to take the farm on, not the lad who stayed at home and earned nothing. Right. You think, but wow, is that that's partly? A, that's a weird flipping of it. Yeah, <laughs> and also partly because I think we just don't think farmers are clever. So there's, I mean, they are so clever and sort of, as you say, farm smart that there's so much you have to do. You have to be an accountant. You have to be a vet. You have to, you know, you, you're constantly juggling things. You have to be an entrepreneur. It's a really tough job, but somehow we don't think you have to be smart or clever to do that, do we? Anyway? No, we don't. And I, I felt very strongly when I was young. I still, to an extent, do now. But who, who is it that creates the culture? It's the clever people that leave. So a lot of the books, a lot of books in the 1950s and 60s, they're written by grammar school boys and girls who get out. Probably the girls, sort of women come later, don't they? But uh, they're the people who come out and they're often, like French books are still like this. They're really damning of wherever you came from. Like yeah. the people you came from, they're stupid. Like, um, and you got out and you self-realised, you self-actualised or whatever, through culture, through art or whatever. And... That's all right, but that's a certain kind of person who wrote those books, isn't it? And there's not many books written by people that that didn't leave. Mm. So you don't really hear the voice, the articulate voice of the person that doesn't leave and doesn't leave. And I think when I, I've had a weird hybrid life of being a farmer and then getting an education and doing other things. But when I wanted to write, I thought there was a 17-year-old inside me who wanted to say, you, you, don't, you don't know who I am and why can I not do that book? Mm. And you helped your you sister helped write your sister a history write. essay, didn't you? And how yeah, old I used, were you? I used, I used was that do, when you yeah. first sort of realised academia might be for you? So I started doing some of my sister's homework, and okay. she was like one of the cleverest, at that time, one of the cleverest people in her school. She was, um, yeah, and I, and you know then, don't you, if you do your sister's homework, and, and there was one particular piece of homework I did for her, I can't remember if it was history or English or what it was, but she'd wanted to go and have a night out. She was really, she, she, she always got good marks. And she's like, all right, I'll let you do it. But like, make it look like it could be mine. Um, so I did that and it came back and it said something hilarious. Like, uh, your work's usually really good, Sally, but this is of a higher standard. Oh, fantastic. And I was like, yeah. And that was the last time she ever let me do a homework. She's like, enough of this. You're out of control now. Um, so yeah, there was a growing, it's like, I have to find a little bit of confidence to do that with my sister. And then my sisters would realise, like, James is pretending to be a Jack the Lad in the pub. He's actually a bit cleverer than that academically. Not that the people in the pub weren't clever. They were clever in their own ways. But uh, And then I would I would sort of slowly build the confidence. So then I would sign up to go on, like, adult education classes, which I did. And then you would... And with every layer, you were, I was a bit terrified. I wasn't a conf, sort of confident person. It's only in the last 15 years of my life, really, that I've... I was the kind of person that would go to my posh auntie and uncle's house where there's like a dinner party set up and I would be like in a cold sweat about it. Like the idea that you have to talk intelligently to strangers, things I do all the time now and think nothing Mm of. I was terrified that like people would think I was stupid or I didn't know how to make small talk. I was quite a nervous, sort of socially nervous person, all of which has disappeared since (laughs) I began to write books. 
uh, sitting here blabbing to you confidently, but I wasn't like that as a, as a teenager. It must have been really hard going back almost to school, sort of that infantilising of having to learn again and pass exams. Why uh, it, did you it, feel you needed the exams? It, you... It's funny that you use that word because, like, I got the one of the probably the best things ever happened to me is I met my now wife, but then girlfriend. I I did nearly nine years at home on the school before uh, nine years at home before I went back into education. Certainly five or six years, I forget what the exact dates are. But I couldn't even do handwriting. So I was on this A-level course at nights, and I was typing, I, I bought like a word processor thing, um, and I would type the essays out, hand them into this teacher who loved everything I did and was like, where, wh wh who are you? Like, <laughs> how comes you're this nerdy and haven't got any qualifications? But then he said, you do realise you, you won't be able to take the word processor into the exam. And I realised I couldn't write fast oh enough. So there's this weird few weeks when my wife had to get like children's books about how to do joined up handwriting. <laughs> you said infantile, it literally was like that. And I didn't know whether to be mad at her for giving me a children's book with like the three lines on and things. But I actually did that for several weeks. And even when I went into the exams, I think one of the first exams I got like a C or a B. And like not being arrogant, but it should have been an A. It's because I got in a complete flunk about not being able to write fast enough. I could write like half a sheet of A4 in 45 minutes. And like my mind's gone because I'm in such a stress and feeling so stupid. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was like structural stuff was holding me back even when I wanted to go back into it. So this is all coming back, I'd forgotten about this. But it was when you used the word infantile, I remember, I didn't know whether I loved her for buying me these books about how to do handwriting or whether I hated her for being so patronising because she was clever and she'd been to grammar school. And but it worked? Yeah, she was patient with me and I got there eventually, but my handwriting's still embarrassing. Anyway, <laughs> what, uh, what age were you when you got married? Um, I got with her when she was 18 and I was 21 and um, when, oh god I can't remember when we got married how absolutely terrible <laughs> is that I've been married like 25 years and I'm 47 so we must have got married in my mid-20s or whatever and had all sorts of weird hang-ups I thought I can't marry you if I'm gonna like be a student and stuff like that it's a stupid thing I had so many like male-fashioned hang-ups about what you should be and what you shouldn't be and so it's only, what, yeah. what, why did you choose to go to Oxford? Because my, one of my hero, book heroes was A.J.P. Taylor, the historian. Mm. I didn't really want to go to Oxford University, but he taught there, and this teacher, te teachers had persuaded me I could do it. They're like, you, you're every bit clever enough to go and do that. So I thought, I'll apply, and even if I only go there and see where he was, that will be an interesting day out. Mm. And, and it escalated really quickly because I was suddenly in like an Oxford college in front of all these people and they're like trying to rough me, so they're sort of doing like a good cop, bad cop routine to see what you're made of. And I'd have completely wilted a few years before, but I don't know, something had, something had changed in me where I, th I think it was possibly I'd watched the movie Good Will Hunting and I, <laughs> I thought, I know how this works. I'll go in here and I'll be really sassy. I'll like, bring it on. <laughs> yeah, and farming's almost like an addiction, isn't it? You can see that you just had to keep coming back to it because you could have done anything when you left Oxford, but you almost, you just need to be here, don't you? It's like being rooted in your... Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I thought I was doing in my head was that I would go there because that's what clever people that earn lots of money did and I would do some sort of hustle thing for a few years, no matter how horrible. I genuinely entertained the idea that I would go and work in London and be a banker or something. I, I genuinely tried to work, convince myself that's how you'd come back with like half a million quid and you'd be able to take over a farm and make it all work. But I couldn't, I just couldn't stay away, really. I wanted to go home and that, and that looks like an idiotic use of, <laughs> of an Oxbridge education. So I came home and then I just didn't know what to do. And then my friends thought that was hilarious. Like, 
oh wow, you're the smartest person we know and you've come back and you haven't got a job, well done. (laughs) (laughs) You really are a loser, well done. Uh, Was it quite tough coming back? Um, I think I felt the same thing as when I left school. Like the, I'm actually, this is where I'm gonna be. Mm. Like we'll just work it out, okay? It's not gonna look great. I might not earn that much money. I might not have all the answers, but actually I'm home. Like just like deep down a feeling of being home. And why do you think farmers got such a bad reputation at that stage in the sort of 80s, 90s going on when they're the custodians of the land, but they're seen as these villains and they were using pesticides and monocrops and artificial fertilizers. And, and you must have seen that very much coming back that, that you saw it as this sort of extraordinary rural ideal. And then you have this sense that yeah. you're the baddie at the same time. So we, all throughout my life, right back to my first memories, I can remember everyone in my world hated... Um, Everyone hated Linda McCartney and everyone hated John Craven. They still do. Um, and it was because they were, they were recognisable faces and names that told you that... Uh, John Craven was hated because he did Country File and it told you every Sunday what was wrong with farming. Like, you've, you, you're ripping out hedges and you're putting pesticides on. That's not really John Craven's fault. He's probably doing a heroic job as a journalist. But in our world, it was just irritating. That's the person that tells you we might be doing something wrong and you do not want to hear about this for many, many iterations of that. Um, so I'd grown up knowing that there were people that didn't like us very much. I'd grown up, there was a sort of culture war between environmentalists and us. And I read enough books, particularly when I was away in Oxford, you, you read more and more of that, or you follow more and more of that media. And I probably felt less defensive because I wasn't having to defend farmers. I thought I'd sort of left in a way. So you could listen to it a little bit more clearly. And the, the straight answer to your question, why are farmers in the firing line at that time? It's because we suddenly start seeing all these amazingly grim statistics about farmland birds or the loss of soil or rivers aren't as healthy as we thought they were. There's a, there's a mounting mountain of, a growing mountain of evidence that says something's weird, like something's wrong in the countryside. There's all this stuff isn't what it should be. And there's two ways of looking at it. One is the environmentalists are crazy or they're exaggerating or they're nuts or this is inevitable or... Maybe that's true. And if it is true, what is the thing that shapes most of the British landscape? It's farming. Oh, sh- oh, damn. If I go down that route of being prepared to listen and, and they're right, is that my family? Mm-hmm. And that's probably where my, my most recent book, English Pastoral, comes from. That sort of reckoning where you go, oh, if there's not enough hedges, what are our hedges like? And if, if there's less birds than there used to be, are there less birds on our farm than there used to be? And if the meadows have all been turned into silage fields, is that my family? Oh, that's mm. us. Oh dear. So when did you start to realise there might be another way? Was there a kind of tipping point? I think, I think I set off in that, if you go back to my granddad and his love of wildlife and things, I, I, was, I think I'm fortunate to grow up in a family that are quite romantic about their piece of land, quite romantic about the wildlife on it, and quite romantic about them being stewards of it. That was a big vibe in my family's idea of itself. So when, so when you hear all that and I begin to think about it, I think, well, I don't want to be the bad guy. I want that to be true. What do I have to do for that to be genuinely true? And I think nearly everything I've done in the books and in the farm since then has been, all right, tell me what I have to do. Tell me what I have to do to stick up for my people. Tell me what I have to do to mend my land. Tell me what I have to do to, to not be the problem. And you've now got the sort of dragonflies and sandpipers and trout and egrets. And, and it's extraordinary here that, you know, and you've got these parcels of rewilded land interspersed with the farming and the, the hardwick sheep. And, 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 it, and it is an extraordinary way of farming that is kind of leading the way in a way of what 
farmers can do next. How did you manage to do that? Um, well, I tend to think we're not extraordinary. I, th I suspect there's a hell of a lot of farmers doing good stuff in lots of places. But if we, if we run with that, how do we do that? I think it's... I, th I think one of the biggest things we did was being willing to listen, however uncomfortable it might be. Listen to the critics about what we haven't got. Listen to what we need. Listen to a botanist. Listen to, listen to a river person. And then... So listening gets you so far of going, OK, I think maybe we need to change some things, um, which is hard for a proud, defensive family. Um, and then the the truth is we haven't got a magic wand or a money tree, so the people somebody has to pop up somewhere with money, and, and people have popped up. You've, you've seen the farm, there's a lot of fencing, there's a lot of tree planting, there's a lot of things going on. So what we've had to do is to not be too proud as to turn help down we've been we've become the, the the opposite we've become shameless like if there's help if there's help to plant the hedges I'll, I'll plant a lot of hedges if there's help to create ponds I'll, I'll do a lot of ponds and yeah so i think i think that's how we've done it so have i done that all myself absolutely not this is a family setup my wife helen's amazing my mum's amazing my dad was pretty amazing are the children involved? Children that? involved heavily. Mm. They're sick of planting trees. <laughs> I think there may be a sort of reactionary kickback about to take place in my family, which my teenage daughters say, enough of this <laughs> Enough of this nature. Let's have some more productivity. Um, but that's all right. So it's a family thing, and I'm becoming very conscious in my mind that it'll be theirs soon. Mm. It'll, there'll be another version of this that comes next. I might look like quite a small blip in a very, a small link in a very long chain. And that's all right. I think that's what I think that's what I was always meant to be, a small link in a very long chain of farmers. And do you feel angry at all about the rich landowners who are obsessed by rewilding, who sort of want to bring back lynx and foxes? Well, they've got lynx and wolves. <laughs> no, I don't, I, don't do feel, you... I don't feel angry. Yeah. I, I did. I did mm. when I was young. I thought, I just thought this is a new sort of greenwash on it. Like, you always trying to do us down. You're always trying to have all the land and the wealth. He did that to my granddad. So I thought it was all selfish. I think that's a, an unkind reading of it. Some of it is that. But um, no, I, I, I think when you listen, you realise people actually genuinely care about this stuff. They genuinely want more birds. They want more, and, and that would require more wetlands, more hedges, more woodland, whatever. Um, and there's some genuine truth in the, in the idea that natural ecosystems with the right herbivores, the right carnivores, the right, create the right processes that, that create the habitats that our wildlife needs. I don't, I don't think we have to be cynical about people, why people want that. It's okay to want that. I'm probably in the realist camp where I say, okay, I know you want it, and I know how you're telling how great it is when it works like that, but is that remotely realistic we could do that? And what, how would that really work in landscapes full of people, and how would it work in landscapes full of small farms, for example, like here? I don't think you can do that. You, you don't want to hear me tell you that you can't do that, but that ain't happening anytime soon. That's utterly re unrealistic. And you might make it worse if you try to make it happen in that context. So maybe the best thing is me and my neighbours and my community do do quite radical things to make it better for nature, but not in a weird rewilding corporate greenwash type mm. way. And do you worry that uh, do you worry that the small traditional farmers will be driven off the land and almost back to the clearances? I think that I think there are forces at work that are desperate for that to happen. Why? So so there's there's a bunch of different things happening. There's if you believe in large scale ecosystem restoration, then you've got to work out how to get small farmers out of marginal landscapes. Mm. It's pretty simple. Um, if you believe in 
sort of American ideas of what good farming looks like. So it's big, it's industrial, it's machine-based, it's monocultural, then you don't need people like me. So those people would would look for ways to get people like me out the door. Um, I could, yeah, and, and, and even if you talk about like our current government and conservatives, I think there used to be people like Nicholas Soames, sort of patriarchal type old-fashioned Tories, and I think they had an, I'm not saying perfect, but they had an understanding of the countryside and they had a sense that they would do pragmatic things to look after it. And I think they may be grossly outnumbered now by people who are more 1980s neoliberals or neocons that say this is all about the market. Um, let's get rid of subsidies, get rid of nostalgia, get rid of the little, let the market blow through this whole thing like it did with mining or whatever in the 1980s and it'll all be better. And what about vegans? Do you feel in the end people are heading that way? Well, I don't think they're heading that way at all. Um, no, I don't. I I respect it. I have, I know lots of thoughtful, sensible vegans, and I never tell anybody what to eat. I, I do. I personally think that's a convincing solution to the problems. No, I don't. Do you ever feel sort of squeamish about taking your lambs to a slaughterhouse? Or no. Going to abattoirs or no? No, I don't. Do you say goodbye I, to them. I, uh, the closest I come to that is with the old ewes that we have. So some of the old ewes we might have had for 10 years. Some of the, you know, they'll have names. I know I've helped them to lamb. Well, there's, there's a very close connection with some of those old ladies. But when they reach the end of their working life, they can't cope with another winter here. They do go and, uh, into the food system. I do, I do say, I don't cry or anything. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say goodbye, ladies. You've been some tremendous. But... But that doesn't, that doesn't worry me. I'm, I'm ultra-pragmatic about the fact that we eat meat. I'm ultra-pragmatic ultra about the fact that we farm it. I have been ever since I was like six or seven years old. I'm sure there was a day where I cried when pet lambs died or whatever, or went to the market. But I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm not ashamed about it. I think it's a sensible thing to do. I think I care about how we do it. I, I would hate to think that I mistreated animals. When they're with me, I take really seriously the welfare of them. And, and so I should. But no, I, I think a sensible, sustainable food system includes herbivores. And it doesn't worry me one jot that they would die for me to eat them. I'm quite hard about that. And do you find that Jeremy Clarkson's become an unusual, strange, surprising ally? Have you been watching his show? I, I did watch his show <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, was quoted, I was quoted recently saying he'd done more for farming than anybody else. Um, <laughs> Which is a bit of an exaggeration. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, quite a silly show with some silly bits in. Like, it's not totally my kind of thing. But um, he did get a lot of people, and a different kind of people maybe, that wouldn't normally have think or thought about farming, that probably wouldn't read a book like the ones I write, to think about how complicated it is to farm, to think about how difficult it is to make a living. And I think when I'm on a train or I'm a... I don't know, I'm in a group of people in a town queuing to get a coffee or whatever, I'm hearing people talk about farming because they've watched Jeremy Clarkson's programme and I think, fair play, mm. fair play. And sends him, you know, I'm not his greatest fan, but he sends himself up, he, he centres the rural people, he lets them their voices be heard. He doesn't pretend it's easy. He doesn't pretend it's easy. He, you know, some of the poking fun at other people about the sort of nature stuff's quite funny as well. And, and also, to be fair to, to Mr Clarkson, you you also sense that he actually got a bit seduced by it. He does actually care about the sheep in it. He does want more birds on his farm. He is actually thinking about how to do it better. 
And the, the, the scene I probably, I'd go so far as to say love, is where he says to his accountant or land agent, like, how comes I made so little money from all this work? <laughs> and what, and all right, I'm a millionaire, but what is everybody else doing? Mm. And you can see that that scene looks fairly genuine to me. He's like, oh, what, what is this? And that's the same thing I'm obsessed with. What is this? What have we asked farmers to do? What, what works and what doesn't? How are the rest of us complicit in it? What do we really want and how would we make that happen? In your worst nightmares, do you feel like you're an endangered species in a way? I think if we'd still, we, we had a, a rented farm that I grew up on. If I was on a rented farm, which was always fairly marginal by the time you paid the rent, I'd be absolutely terrified. And lots of my friends and people I grew up with are on rented farms and I'm terrified for them. That's probably my starting point. And I don't think it's fair what's about to be unleashed on them. Like to, to ask them to farm in more nature-friendly ways, more regulated ways, more expensive ways, at the same time as undercutting them and letting more stuff in mm. from other places mm. that aren't subject to the same rules, that seems to me to be just morally corrupt, sort of politically dishonest nonsense. Mm. Am I worried that I am in any way about to, I personally am about to vanish? No, I'm stubborn as hell. My, mm. my daughters are stubborn as hell. I've got a funny feeling we'll, we'll find a way whatever happens. But that sounds a little bit like I'm all right, Jack, because we live in the Lake District and I know how to hustle and write books and we live in a beautiful hillside in a beautiful valley and I'll work out how to have some shepherd's huts or something. So I'd, <laughs> uh, like, uh, as a family, we'll find a way. However, however you stack that up, you're not going to get rid of me. So but. looking back to yourself at 15 when you left school, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? I think if I'd known everything I knew now, I may not have done all of the same things. Mm. <laughs> 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 I'm maybe a lot more chilled out. <laughs> and I probably, I, I don't know, I don't really, that may not be the answer to the question that you asked, but I don't know, I think life's a gift, isn't it? I look at the worst things that ever happened to me, the bad times, the boring times, it all helps you get to where you're at. And I don't really have any regrets about where I'm at. I'm incredibly lucky in terms of who I'm married to. We somehow found a way to get to the farm. Okay, I still haven't worked out all of the financial problems around it. I've been doing that. I've been trying the hardest I could, and that's all there really is, isn't there? James Rebanks, thank you very much. Right. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the farmer and writer James Rebanks. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back to our previous guests on the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organizations who are there to help. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.